Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. love that we get to sit down with the Word of God and come to it not out of a set of habits, but just out of a, we want to know what God has to say. And we can dig in and we do it with, uh, with hearts full of the Spirit, I think. So the, the first, uh, we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 5 and uh, skip down to verse 12. I have not been finishing chapters because I think some of the Topical breaks are in different spots in Hebrews. So we're going to actually pick up in Hebrews 5, verse 12. And it says, for though are the first two words. So again, we have these sequential statements and they're progressive as we go through Hebrews. I'm emphasizing this because we're going to get to probably the toughest verses in Hebrews today. And to know that it's part of a sequential set of thoughts, they go in order and it's an ongoing thread of logic for those people that recognize Jesus' resurrection from the dead was a spiritually significant event. So Jewish people that have recognized Jesus rose from the dead and they believe he's the Messiah, but then they go and stick with temple worship and everything they used to do in their old life. So you've got these folks that believe in the principles, but they don't know what to do with that. And we we often talk about reading the word and then doing the word. And Hebrews is really an admonishment to these Jewish people that were going back to Judaism when they don't need to. So chapter one, uh, just to get that thread, Jesus is, he was more than an angel. Like clearly he's not an angel. That argument you need to put to the side. Chapter two, he wasn't really human. He was fully human, but he was the best of humans. He was a perfected human. Uh, Chapter three, we have, the argument that, well, we still have to stick to Moses' covenant because God gave it. That was a Jewish argument. So we have to do that. Jesus establishes a new covenant in chapter 3 that you have as much, you have more obligation to God's most current covenant than to follow the one that's the old covenant. And then in chapter 4, we've found rest in in Israel. We have our country and we have our nation would be the Jewish argument. Chapter 4 argues, no, David said that the rest was coming and we have a new rest in Jesus Christ. And then the other one, chapter 5, deals with the next argument, but we have a Levitical priesthood. and we, So we have Levitical priests. We don't need Jesus as a priest. Chapter 5 argues, yes, you do. Jesus was a non-Levite new high priest by the order of Melchizedek, which Lisa's a huge fan of. So he's actually the priest and he's the king both, but so was Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem, king of peace, and he was a priest that took tithes from Abraham. He was a king of righteousness. Literally, that's what his name means. So Jesus meets all of these requirements, and we have to learn to obey Jesus to be a follower, even with testing and trials. It was hard for these early Jewish people because persecution was starting up. So it's really easy to be a believer when nobody's on your case about it. It's really hard to be a believer when suddenly folks are wondering what you're doing and why you're doing it, and why aren't you coming to synagogue? Don't you love us anymore? And the answer was, yes, I love you dearly, but I'm not going to go back to the dead things. And that's how I evangelize to you. 
is I make that line and I draw a line and I stand on the side of Jesus. The problem at the end of chapter five, I'm just going to read verse 11 again. The problem that they're not getting this, it's they understand the theoretical parts of Christianity, uh, but they have dull ears. Verse 11, of whom we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Like the point is that they were able to get it, but they've become hard of healing, hearing. That's a tough place to be as a believer. You get it. You're ready to hear it. They were excited at one point in their faith, but now they've gotten sluggish and lazy and they're not pursuing their faith anymore. And there's something wrong with that. Complacency is, is this idea of dullness of hearing happens to people. It's not a state of being. It's a state of developing into it. So it's a, a growth trajectory. You can grow in the spirit or you can grow in dullness. And there's this reality that Hebrews is pointing out. And he's saying, there's so much to talk about with the faith, but if you're dull of healing, I can't really get into these tougher issues with you. <laughs> so it looks a lot like the parable of the seeds. Some of those seeds, they, they were planted, like the Holy Spirit planted something in a person, but the opposition comes and they fall away. Or the riches show up and then that, like thorns, they choke out the spiritual life of people. And suddenly that spiritual life is just not happening. So now the explanation of why they're dull of hearing, it's a parenthetical chapter. In fact, if you read verse 11 and then skip down to chapter 7, verse 1, it picks up right where it left, left off. So everything between 5.11 and 7.1 is like one big spiritual spanking, right? He's going to talk about like this reality of dullness. And I didn't come up with spiritual spanking. Pastor Jeff down in Madison did. I just love the term. It's a spiritual spanking. The writer's going to absolutely tear these people to shreds. And that's what we get this chapter. So if we soften our hearts, we can get ready to be kind of get a spiritual spanking today. So how does the writer know that they're dull? And verse 12 picks up on that thought. This is why I know you're dull people, right? And again, if you go down to chapter 7, he like lets them off the hook a little bit. I know you're not these people. But sometimes spiritually, it's okay for us to get a warning of something bad that can happen so that it doesn't happen. And I think that's what's going on here. So we'll pick up verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. So one of the evidences of being dull is that you've been a believer for a long, 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 long time and you still don't know how to talk about your faith. You're still not able to do it. So if you're being taught every week how to talk about your faith, how come you're not talking about your faith? So there's this dullness that happens. They have a knowledge of the things of God, but they're not acting on the things of God. That's one evidence that somebody's going dull. The use of you ought to be teachers here in the Greek is being used in a very general sense. This doesn't mean that everybody needs to be teaching the word on a Sunday. That's absolutely not what they're talking about here. This is a universal sense of being able to tell other people about what you believe and what you think. You should be able to come to church on Sunday, take two or three of the ideas from a Bible teaching, and talk about them all week. So that's the kind of teaching. Like when you're dealing with your grandkids, when you have a friend at work, and you're talking about, oh, on Sunday I learned this, 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 you should be able to be able to talk about it with people. Like the purpose of learning is so that you can share it. And everybody, in this sense of the word, everybody's ready to talk about their faith. Not just the Bible teacher on Sunday morning with the notes, but everybody talks about what they believe. 1 Peter 3.15, you guys know this verse. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's, 
a conditional, and always be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. We're not doing it aggressively. We're doing it with meekness and we do it with fear. And I think this is what the fear sounds like when you're talking to other people about the word. The fear comes out like this. I don't know everything. And I may not be saying this the right way because I'm not that good with my words yet. But Jesus loves me. He died on a cross for me and he loves you too. And he wants you to come into the kingdom of God with him. Right? Just simple teaching. Teaching the basic precepts of God. And being able to do that. And if you're not good at it, practice it. Right? And the way you practice it is when you go to a restaurant, you're able to talk to the waiter or waitress about it. You go to the gas station and somebody comes to fill up your car with gas, if that happens anymore, you hop out of your car and you talk about it. You're always teaching. You're always sharing. Not to the point of annoyance, but to the point of just being with meekness and with fear. So, our, you know, and again, I was encouraged to ask convicting questions. And this is that kind of chapter. So... Are you ready to give an answer for your faith if you left here right now and on the way home somebody, you know, started talking to you at the stop sign? Are you ready to do that? Can you succinctly teach other people two or three thoughts from the teaching this morning? And that's why a lot of you take notes. Or at least do you have the hope to get the opportunity to talk to people about your faith? Is that even in our hearts? Like that we want to have those opportunities because the Lord provides them. Do you have hope yourself that you can share with people? I know Jesus is coming back for me. Boy, I, don't, I can't tell you. We talk to believers that are terrified about what's happening in the world right now. They listen to the news and they're just anxious and fearful. That's not the hope of Jesus. That's the fear of the enemy. So is there a hope in your heart that you can share with other people? You know what? The world looks pretty bad, but I know God's on his throne. I know God's on his throne. That's what I call hope. I know he's coming back for us soon. And these turbulent times are indicators that we have to be ready for when he comes. He could come tomorrow. He might tarry beyond our lifetimes, but he could come right now. Boy, wouldn't this be the great place for the, for the Lord to come back and we're here doing Bible study together? I wonder if God's coming back on a Sunday morning. Like, you know, be easy for him to sort people. That's for easier. So if you know anything, are you ready to share it with other people and teach it? Jesus didn't say to make converts. He said to make disciples. That's an important distinction. If not then, here's the phrase in the verse, the first principles of the oracles of God. The word there is logion, utterance, the first ideas, the premises. Like So again, this is the building blocks, the ABCs, first principles. This is the simple, simple stuff, the milk that we, that we read about. So he knows they're dull because they can't even talk about the easy stuff, the building blocks. Jesus loved you. He died for your sins on the cross. He resurrected the life again, paving a path for us to be saved and resurrected with him in heaven for all eternity. All you have to do is accept that gift and follow Jesus as your king. Simple building block stuff. Anybody that knows Jesus should be able to share why they found Jesus and why they follow Jesus. So the ability to teach doesn't go beyond that. But he's talking to people as he's writing Hebrews that want a PhD, but they still are stuck in kindergarten. And they got their ABC building blocks and they're dealing their baby stuff and they want somebody, J. Vernon McGee says they want somebody to burp them. you know. And he's calling them a bunch of babies. It's a spiritual spanking. So again, if it lands that way, that's what it is. If all you want on a Sunday morning are simple, easy milk preaching teachings, Five-minute devotionals, not one-hour lessons. 
that's a danger for dullness in the ears. If all you have an appetite for in God's word is a simple homily from the priest, you're in trouble. That's not consuming God's word. That's not digesting it. And I'm slowing down on this because I think America is in a lot of trouble when you read uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Hebrews. We're in trouble, folks. And I'm not talking this fellowship, but neither is the writer. He's going to pull back on his readers. How do you know if you're a baby in the faith? And I think that's a good question. We should ask ourselves this, not out of shame or beating ourselves up, but we ask this question because we want to be growing up in our faith, regardless of what's going on around us. You're responsible for you, and other people are responsible for them. So one way to know it is that you've come to need milk. An adult believer can drink milk, yes, but a baby believer can't eat the solid food, right? It's a great image of the faith. You know, so the idea is if all you can do, all you need is milk, then you're not maturing. You're a spiritual infant. Like in verse 11, you can see it kind of down there too. The idea of scripture as spiritual food is found throughout the Bible. So one way to know if you're dull is how, to what degree you enjoy taking in God's word. And some of that has to do with, your, like, you can blame the teacher. Well, the teacher was boring this morning. The teacher was not. Regardless of how boring the teacher was, and, and again, it's hard, you know, when you're the teacher, it's hard to talk about this, but it shouldn't be all about the teacher. It should be about you. We've been to churches where the teacher, the teacher was off on a total tangent. I'm just going to do my own Bible study because that time set aside for Bible study. So even if the teacher's failing me that week, I'm going to still consume the word. I'm responsible for that. We love the basics, right? A more Im the more immature the church is, I think the shorter the teaching gets. The early disciples were doing Bible study every night of the week on weekends. They would spend whole days. They would spend so long doing Bible study that people would fall asleep sitting in the upper window, fall out the window and get dead, and Paul had to resurrect them to life. Like think of how many hours you have to be going. Total, they're just eating it up. Jesus was God. We have a new covenant. We have rest in the everlasting life. We have an eternal high priest. These are the first oracles of, of God. And that's what they just got done going through in Hebrews. Those are the basic things, right? You got a new high priest. You got rest in the kingdom. You can partake of the body of Christ by hanging out with other believers. These are the building blocks. These are the ABCs. These are little baby things. We should adore those things. It's not that milk is bad, right? 1 Peter 2.2, as a newborn baby, they desire pure milk of the word so that they can grow nearby. We adore John 3.16. I love Psalm 23. Those basic memorized them in Awana verses, those are great. Those are foundational ABCs. They're important. But they go with cookies, right? They go with milk. And he's calling them babies because that's all they want. The point of first utterances of God is to want more. And then we want the full counsel of God, which we're going to get to in Hebrews 6. 1 Corinthians 3.2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. Even now you're not able. There's, there's some distinction with Paul that with new believers, I don't really want to throw the hard things at them. And isn't it amazing when you have immature believers that come into the church and they want to get into like, theological quandaries and problems, right? They're babies spiritually, but they want to talk about open theism and closed theism. And they want to talk about Arminianism, right? Calvinism, right? They want to talk about the resurrection of the dead and all these very complex ideas. So 
Paul uses discernment with brand new believers. You get them to the simple stuff and you let them learn the simple stuff before you push the hard stuff. You don't, you don't throw the baby into the steakhouse. Paul shows discernment as to how he's doing that. Milk and solid food. Milk is the first principles, the basics. Solid food is the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament Melchizedek. Like that's a tougher concept to get into. But it's still, that's the cool Bible study. Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. We can read that as he's a little baby Christian. Women, you can read it as she's a little baby Christian. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. They're a big boy. They're a big girl. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We are slowing down on these verses because this is just, it's packed. Every line. Only of milk here. The key here is the milk is not bad, but it's simple. And sometimes the simple is beautiful and wonderful. It's what brought me into the faith. I didn't understand complex ideas when I became a Christian. I was sitting around a campfire and the preacher was talking and he said, anybody wants to be a Christian, sign up. And I raised my hand and I walked forward. I signed up. I didn't need to know it, but I, Jesus loves me and there's a free present. I'll take it. Right? It's simple. But part of only wanting the milk is that you're unskilled in the word. We don't expect new believers to know the word backwards and forwards. We just don't. Right? But we use the word when we talk about our faith so that they can get good at it. So no matter who you are, you can't grow if you're not spending time in the Word. That means both listening to Bible teachings, but it also means talking about it with other people. right? Notice that it says, by reason of use in that verse. You have to use it. Use it or lose it. So a new believer is a true delight. We love new believers. They're cuddly, they're cute, they got big chubby cheeks. New believers are awesome. They're energetic, they're excited. They're telling everybody about their faith. And that's something you never lose hold of, right? They don't, but, but in the same sense, if you behave like a baby when you're a grown adult, there's some aspects of that that are really not cool. And it's why they're writing this chapter. A grown adult that throws a temper tantrum because they're hungry, that's embarrassing, right? And they still ask for their whoobie. That's not cute when you're 29 years old walking around with your blankie. It's cute for a kid. The universal definition of growing up is to take on more and more responsibility for yourself. I know how to brush my own teeth. Well, good, you're growing up. But when a 30-year-old says that, you say, about time. And that's what this, I think that's what this is with Hebrews is, you're an adult, but you still enjoy baby food? Like, there's more to the Bible than the basics. Lots more. It's deep and rich. There's tons there to consume. And by reason of practice. So I'm going to do a couple you might be a babies, right? You might be a baby if. You ever heard Jeff Foxworthy? Again, I'm preaching to the choir, I think. But man, for me going through this this week, these are questions I'm going to ask myself, but I'm also going to ask you, right? You might be a baby if you have no skill. Babies don't know how to walk very well. They kind of can crawl around on their arms, but they definitely don't know how to do athletics. They don't know how to run a race. And we don't expect them to. But after a few years, Jesus expected his disciples to go and do it. Learn it and do it. Ephesians 4, 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You know you're a baby if you're unskilled with the word. You don't know how to handle it. Somebody brings something up and you have no idea where to go to talk about that. That's unskilled. But solid food, verse 14, 
rich, deep Bible study, man, that's a gift from God. We will drive hours to get to good Bible study. We'll drive to Missouri to hear some good Bible study, right? That's, it's something you pursue and you go after it so that you can handle the word when you deal with other people. And it's fun at the same time. You're blessed by digging in. And it's great, but it informs how you do things. They use the word full age there. For Jewish kids, when, when we see full age in the Hebrews text, Jewish kids would start training in the word of God very young. And then when they were able to carry on the word of God, literally to keep the legal and religious obligations of Judaism, they would have a bar mitzvah. And that bar mitzvah was a celebration saying, this kid, typically 12, 13 years old, they are full age. That's the term they would use. They've come of age. They're now morally and spiritually responsible for handling the word of God with other people. At age 13, really young by our standards, we think, man, you're 20, you got to go find yourself. No, you don't. Yourself is right where it's always been. It's not lost. You're ready to keep the commandments at age 13. So that idea of being ready in full age, remember for this writer, he's thinking like 13-year-olds, right? There's no teen years. There's no adolescence, that idea doesn't form till the 1900s. There's kitty kitties and there's adults. There's babies and there's full age. And there's nothing in between those two. So you might be a baby if you're divisive in a church. You find that when you're in conversations, you're arguing all the time. That's a baby faither, a a baby faither, right? See Ephesians 4 again, right? Don't be children. Don't be tossed to and fro. Don't get carried around by every wind of doctrine. Don't bite on these stupid little detours that come up all the time. And, you know, I've been walking the earth for almost 50 years now. Every 10 years, there's some new thing that comes through the church, and it, it blows through the church. The wind of doctrine is a great phrase for it, right? It tends to be in the prophecy world that that comes, and people just buy into it, or there's some book that comes out that everybody's excited about. Don't bite on all of those. Right? Don't change your path because of those little winds that blow you back and forth. People that are mature in their faith are like rocks. They got a firm foundation. They know where they stand. And the word of God is sufficient for all, for teaching, for reproof, for guiding my life. I'll read the other little book, but man, I'm not changing my course because of it. It's a wind of doctrine. So uh, Titus 3.10 says, reject a divisive person after the first and second admonition. Go to him once, go to him twice. If I got to keep going back a third time, it's time to get out of the fellowship. You're just divisive. So this comes from people that are foolish, people that are selfish, they're solo. Jay Vernon talked about people that come up after the service and say, well, how come we didn't do this song today? I really like this song. And they were upset about it. And he would just, be, and he, he would just say, wow, that person was just a baby. They're just, they're all only thinking about themselves all the time. And so they've never matured into taking on not only their own responsibility, but loving and caring for others, other people's responsibility. That's maturity. I'll look out for you like you look out for me. Maturity. You might be a baby if you're sleeping all the time. Babies like to sleep. I thought that was a nice comparison. The phrase in our verse is by reason of use. Full-age people are practicing, they're learning, they're trying it, they're growing in it. They're keeping kind of a spiritual regiment because they use what they learn. So I do Bible study in the morning because sometime during the day, I'm going to run into somebody where I can share what I read this morning to them and just move it forward. I don't have to memorize the whole Bible. I just have to remember what I read this morning. And 
I, honestly, 90% of interactions about the Bible, the Lord put me on exactly what I needed to read to deal with that situation that day. I don't know how that works, but it's a total miracle in my life. And I just give God the glory. Man, I was just reading that today, and it perfectly applies to this person and what they need and what, where they're struggling at right now. Perfectly. Happens over and over and over again. And people get this impression that you know the Bible backwards and forwards. No, you don't. I just remember like a day ahead of time, you know, and that's all you need to do. Full-agers keep the law. They don't undermine it. They don't fall asleep. They, they gain in skill, and they put what they learn into practice. This is why, by the way, we keep bringing up things like the State Fair. Boy, what an awesome opportunity for people that feel like they've got the basics of why they're a believer. Like, you don't need any more training to talk about your faith because if you know why you have faith, you got enough to share it with other people. And things like the State Fair are just a great place to practice it because you got a big tent that says who you are. Everybody walking up to that tent knows exactly who you are and what you're all about. So it's, it's, I think it's a way to mature that's just by reason of use. You get out and you use it. Babies, though, they're never awake. They never catch the situation. They're always saying, man, I wish I would have said this or I wish I would have... They're just sleeping all the time. They're dull. So they miss these opportunities, and frankly, that's just embarrassing for the church. They call themselves believers, but they never grab the opportunities. They're always missing them. So spiritually, they still need mommy or daddy to get them out of bed, make their bed, get them dressed, comb their hair, brush their teeth, and share the gospel. Right? That's not a tough thing to do. But in the church today, and this is a, a, a widespread belief, I have to be, go through seminary before I can change my, share my faith. That's an absolute lie from Satan. Think of how Satan just reduced the number of people out talking about their faith. That's a horrible lie. You'd, all you need is enough for you to be convinced. And there's other people walking around that God will not give you more than you can handle. He's going to give you people just like you that need to hear exactly what you needed to hear to be a believer. Baby Christians are sleeping and that they never plan anything. They're never planning an event. They never do a ministry. They never help out with other people that are planning. They never serve. They're only taking care of themselves all the time. They're babies. And you know what? We love our babies, right? We love, if, we love our biological babies and we love our spiritual babies. They're super cute. And we love having them. But, and, and they're going to take and take and take and take because it's all they know how to do. But as people grow in their faith and as they mature in their faith and as they hear the word, we expect them to step up and help out with things. Not in any religious kind of way. We don't have rules around it. But there's a point where people say, you know what, can I help out with that? Can I, can I bring this? Can I do that? Um, and we just celebrate that because what that, what that is is it's just growing maturity. Jude 1 verse 20, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, you maintain yourselves in the love of God. You take care of yourselves while anticipating the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings eternal life. We celebrate maturity as much as we celebrate our new babies. It's awesome that we got people that just, they're in their word every day, they're taking care of themselves spiritually, they're finding their path, they got a foundation under them, and they're moving forward. And man, you get a body of believers like that, if we become more like that, nothing stops that kind of thing in world history. Like we have record after record of church changing entire cultures. But it's not just the pastor that's on their game. It's everybody that's on their game. They're not, the pastor's not just dealing with a room full of babies. The point of being a baby is to drink the milk so that you can grow up and get the solid food. There's a, there's a trajectory after we become believers. When you want other people to serve you, <laughs> you're going to never hear this again. You're going to hear people complain about churches from here on out. When all you think about is church is how the church serves you, you're a baby. 
you're a little baby faither, right? Give them their nookie and let them do their complaining. But when you think about when I go to church, how can I serve other people? And that can be as simple as giving a compliment or blessing them. I'm totally blessed whenever people compliment the teaching. I love it, you know? And I try to give the glory to God because God does get the glory for all that. But I'll take the compliments. That's encouraging when people enjoy things. So it might be as little as how can I, how can I compliment the food today to the people that prepared it for you, right? What a gift for people to say thank you, clean up the dishes, you know, take care of things. Those little gifts are things that people do as they mature in their faith. For every, every use of reason, every doctoral discernment we make gives us exercise in helping us grow up. Note that it's by use of reason. I, that phrase is interesting. When we use our head, we're growing up. We're not just stupid believers. We grow in those things. You use it or you lose it. Here's my last one. You might be a baby if you're cranky all the time. And, and I put the last one, like, this is what I got to work on. In the flesh, I'm a very cranky person. But you might be a baby if the little things bug you and you can't look past them. And that's, that's a tough place to be. Full-agers, they got the ability to take in sensory experiences, discern how to react, and then understand what's best for the body before they react. Right? But baby believers, man, they just let it, they cut it loose. They're always complaining, you know. They forgot about the whole never has heard a discouraging word kind of thing. And it's always discouraging words coming out their mouth. And that's not the idea that sometimes we have to deal with things. But boy, you know these folks. They're babies. They haven't grown up spiritually. Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's a full ager. That's what it looks like to be grown up. I'm going to do everything I can to get along with the people in my fellowship. In fact, I think God gives us fellowships with unperfect people so we can learn to deal with unperfect people because we are unperfect people. And the church is messy that way. So when you hear people complain, I don't go to church anymore, it's full of hypocrites. It's, you know, it's full of you know, all this. Well, if you were there, we'd be that much more deluded from the hypocrites, right? Because of course, you're not that person. Being in a church helps us learn how to mature and be graceful with other people even though they're not grown up yet. Their senses are exercised to discern. They understand how to handle situations. That only comes from practice. And again, I, I'm, this is a spiritual spanking week. When we were going to a church named Blackhawk in Madison, I might get sued for saying their name. We'd go in every week, and I'd complain when the sermon went too long. I would complain when the music was horrible. I would complain when the pastor would use props and, and gimmicks. I thought that was ridiculous. Why would you do that? We would drive home from church every week and I would just be complaining every single week until at one point I was like, I'm just done going to church. What a waste of my time. And I was a baby Christian. Make no doubt about it. Babies are cute, but they also are a lot of work, especially at two in the morning, right? When you're tired and you got to listen to that. So my wife had amazing patience with me. You know, she won't admit that, you know, she was having patience with me. But, you know, there's a point where whiny baby Christians tend to fall away. And they tend to go follow other things that make them happy, like a candy store. And the candy store becomes far more engaging for a baby Christian, whatever the spiritual candy store might be. And they'll go after the easy entertainment things that they don't have to interact with. Netflix. Boy, I never complain about Netflix because Netflix is always feeding me what I want in the flesh. Right? And so that's what people do. 
and they call themselves Christians, but they're really Netflixians, right? They call themselves believers and followers of Christ, but they're really Vikings fans. They're following false gods and going after it, right? Baby Christians. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. The discernment of good and evil. They don't know how to handle the world they live in because they don't know what's good and evil because they're dabbling in evil too much. The very things that they think will help them are actually going to destroy them and tear them apart. So good and evil is defined by God's law. That's the doctrine. That's the meat. That's the solid food we're supposed to be figuring out. Well, how do we follow God's world in this world? How do we follow God's rule in this world? What does that look like? How do I not get into temptation? Instead of how close can I get to it, we say, how do I get as far as possible from that nonsense? Babies get irritated easy. Full-agers bear with the other people. They think, they learn, they keep the unity. Elementary stuff, right? There's a, pod, a, a Calvary Chapel podcaster online named Mike Winger, and he'll have people that say, can you just quickly explain in a minute or two the biblical understanding of men and women in the church? Can you just do that in five minutes? <laughs> the answer is like, no. He's done an eight-hour series going through that. That's solid food you're asking for. And you're a baby faither. You're not ready for the solid food. You're not ready for that. We'll talk about homosexuality in the Bible. Okay, that's solid food. You're, you don't even have the ABCs down. You don't share your faith with people. You're not helping out and serving in the church. Why would I get into that with you now? Just come and be blessed and learn the word. Like, let's not get into the political issues of our day until you're ready for solid food. Because it's far more important you learn about the grace and love of Jesus Christ than it is about you figuring out what the, what the Bible thinks about uh, wars overseas. Much, much different level of understanding. So the writer here is like, I would tell you about the solid food, but you're baby faithers. You're just living in your baby world. So then you get to chapter 6, and the word therefore now makes sense. Therefore, <laughs> leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of the Christ, there's a, there's a proper word, the, in there the principles of the Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on hands, of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God commits. I'm going to get to the solid food with you, but we got to put to bed these other issues that you're still confused about laying on of hands. Well, because that's a core ABC principle of the faith. What's interesting on these, these elementary things, this list he gives us, the first two, repentance and faith, is the beginning. Baptism and laying on hands is like the practice of, and resurrection and judgment is like the end of days. Right? There's really only three building blocks there. And they're, they're grouped in twos in the Greek, too. So moving on, we can have faith towards these things. These are all good things to understand, but they're the foundation things. So all of these elements, and I think this is interesting, all six of those elements in those verses are all Jewish traditions. They're Jewish issues. So we read them like Christians because those are really familiar words for us, but those are issues that the Jewish people were debating and arguing about. What's a baptism? What does it symbolize? What's it for? For Christians, we've put that to bed. We know exactly what that is. Laying on of hands, well, do we do that? Do we not do it? When do we do it? When do we don't do it? Is that work on a Sabbath or is it not work on a Sabbath? Jews got very confused over these issues. But all six of those things you can do and carry out and not follow Jesus Christ. It's faith towards God that's there. The Christ. He doesn't mention Jesus in this particular verse. 
He's talking to Jews. The baptisms there is actually in the plural, the doctrine of baptisms, right? <laughs> so the word baptismos is not the same as baptizo. When Christians talk about getting baptized, it's a singular baptism of the water, and then there's a singular baptism of the Spirit. And the water we control, because we just go out and do it at the lake, the Spirit God controls. He does it when He pleases. And the Jewish ceremonial washings are plural, uh, used in chapter 9, verse 10, Mark 7. The Jewish people would do baptisms. Every time before they gave a sacrifice, they would do ceremonial washings that they called baptismos. They would have a baptismo that they would do it in. So when he uses that word baptisms in the plural, he's directly talking to Jewish traditions. These are the foundations of the Christian faith, but they're not the Christian faith. All right. Christians then talk about these things. Laying out of hands is another one in the church we get to. Laying out of hands is in the, in the, in the Christian church. In 2 Timothy, it's for ordaining people for ministry. We lay on hands when they're going to go do a ministry. And then we lay on hands, James chapter 5, when people are sick. We lay hands on them. Even in COVID, like we do that. We touch. It happens. Resurrection, it's mentioned in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12. In other places, resurrection is not uniquely a Christian concept. It's also very, very Jewish. It's proven in Jesus. It's not proven necessarily in the Old Testament. So when Jesus rises from the dead and walks and talks with people and all these people come up out of their graves in the book of Matthew, the idea of resurrection just got put to bed. Like the Sadducees and Pharisees debating over it, like doesn't happen after that. Okay, clearly people rise from the dead. Something's going on here. This life that we see is not the only one that is. Daniel 12, 2. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now we focus on perfection. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can look to the perfection of these things. Uh, teleates, completeness, more intelligent. Actually, the word in the Greek often gets used for maturity. We can focus on maturity. So we use perfection and we think like flawless. They're using perfection. They're talking about spiritual maturity and growth to perfect your faith. The only use that we have of this particular word um, helps give light to that. Colossians 3.14. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of maturity or the bond of perfection. So it gets used in another place in the Bible. The claim here isn't that we have to be per perfect in a sense of sin and righteousness but that we become perfect and that we know how to handle our faith when we talk to other people. We're confident in that. And in fact, you might be thinking to yourself, but I don't know how to handle my faith with other people. The fact that you're worried about that says you're not the people he's writing to right now. These people are dull. They don't even think that thought. But you're like, I got to get better at it. That's a motivator to get better at it. Then you're maturing as a Christian. That's exactly where you should be. Not in arrogance, thinking you know everything, but not in dullness, thinking I don't know anything and I never will. But you're like, I'm here because I want to learn. The temptation for the Jewish Christians was to keep their old practices because it was easier to do that. Simple, elementary. They don't have to be religious. They don't have to be all in. They don't have to upset their families. And then it says, if God permits. I love that they add that clause in there in verse 3. Let's move on if we can because God helps with maturity. We don't do it ourselves. Maturity comes as God moves in our heart. So now we get to the tough spot. I'm going to warn before we get to chapter 4. When I announced we were going to do Hebrews, Mike was all like, what are you going to say for 
chapter six, verse, when we get to these verses, what are you going to do? What are you going to say here? And it takes five chapters to get up to verse four through six. These verses are the cause of most divisions in the church over the last 2,000 years. These verses are the center of major divisions between people. The way you read these verses is like fighting words for people. So some people have called these verses the devil's favorite verses because this is churches get into this and then they split, which is if you're a full living room, maybe that's okay. Maybe God's moving people in different things. But whole denominations get into it. Here's my prayer as we get into this. We don't divide over this. We eat it like spiritual food and we actually unite around the conversation. We don't have to agree about if, you're, if, if salvation is preordained or it's free will. We don't have to agree, but we can enter into that conversation as mature adults. And that has, in fact, been everything the writer of Hebrews has led us to these verses with. you got to grow up. So he goes from the foundational things in verses 2 and 3, and then he throws you into possibly the most difficult issue that Christians ever have to deal with when we get to these verses. So, for example, here's some solid food. Let me give you something meaty to chew on. And he gives you kind of one of the most confounding things we can possibly get to here. Here's, here's my suggestion. It's called first exposition. Let's read it for what it says. And regardless of our history around this particular topic, let's read it in context and let's just hear what it says. And maybe if it says something we, that our entire spiritual background disagrees with, maybe we just agree with what it plainly says straight up. And that's how we've always covered the Bible. Um, you can take anything you want in the Bible and you can read it the wrong way by taking it out of context. For example, Deuteronomy 16.22, the Lord your God hates. If I pull that out of context, that might send a, a different message than what the rest of the Bible says. Right? Here's another one. I'll just give you some good ones. These, pull this out of context. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me totally misused. Like you have athletes using that, that in energy drink commercials, like it's used all over the place. The context of that in the Bible is when you're being persecuted and sitting in a jail cell and you're trying to find comfort. I can do all things through Christ. I can find comfort even in a jail cell. Like got to know the context, right? Here's another one. Jeremiah 29, 11. I have plans to prosper you, right? That's the foundation of an entire wing of prosperity gospel Christians. In context, that's promising Israel that they'll return from Babylon. God has exiled them, and he says, I have plans to prosper you. I'm going to put you back in the land. Very specific audience for that passage, but we use it for everything. Well, I need a new travel bus, so I'm just going to pray for it, and God's going to give me a travel bus because he has plans to prosper me. And that's absolutely not what that verse says. Here's, the, here's another one. And again, these I'm hoping to blow your minds when we get into our verses in Hebrews. That, that we're okay with how we go through them. Uh, Matthew 18, 20, we just did this one. For where two or three are gathered, God will be there too. If two or three are gathered, I'll be there too. Okay, the context of that verse is not every time you pray with people, the God's there. That's not what that's saying. Specifically, what it is saying is that when you do church discipline and you have to discipline someone in sin and you bring two people into the room to talk to that person, the Holy Spirit will help you with the conversation. So context matters in the Bible. The context we have is you guys are eating baby food and you're not even ready for it, but God willing, if God permits, let me give you some solid food. Let me give you one of the toughest discussions we can have and see how you take it. So that's where we pick up in verse 4. 
for it's, I'll just read the section. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Impossible. So plain reading of this, the word impossible is emphatic in its use. It's not challenging or difficult to interpret this. It is the, the use of the word by the writer is that this is a category of people that cannot be moved. And repentance is impossible when you have this attitude. Okay? Any return to legalistic Judaism in context leaves you without an eternal and intermediate high priest. Going back to Caiaphas in the temple, you cannot get saved by going back to Mosaic Judaism. The emphatic there in, in, in verse 4 sets the whole thing up. So then it goes on, verse 4 through 5, gives this very impressive resume. This is what it means to be enlightened. Once enlightened. The enlightened is literally what it, same thing it means in the English. It is to have light shined upon you. To have full understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for you. You understand the concepts. Maybe you even have accepted those concepts. You're enlightened. You've had your eyes open spiritually. John 3 calls this born again. You see for the first time, like you've never seen, you've reborn. All of this is in the past tense. All of these items are listed as though they have already happened. You have tasted. You have become partakers. So it's impossible once you've seen the light and the gospel, you've heard it, you know it, and you go back to other religions to try to find your, your help, you're in trouble because that stuff's not going to help you anymore. It's a very direct kind of statement. Tasting the heavenly gift is to taste there is to test something, which means to have a full or complete experience of it. So we think of tasting as like a little bit. When they use the word tasting, like in Hebrews 2.9, Jesus tasted death. That's not a partial thing. He fully experienced death. The gift of God and salvation, Romans 6.23, is something you taste salvation. It's not a partial. It's a full thing. Jesus is a gift, John 4.10. To taste the gift of Jesus Christ is not a partial experience. It's a whole way thing. So you're just taking what the reader says. One way to handle this is, well, maybe they never tasted the gift, but that's not what the writer is saying. You have, it's impossible, clear and emphatic. You have been enlightened. You've seen it all. Past tense, you've tasted the heavenly gift. You know what Christianity is because you've experienced it fully. Right? Oh, this gets tough. Then you've become a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not a small thing. You've actually felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 3, 1 and 14, the church partakes in the Holy Spirit as a fellowship. You've come to a church, you've hung out with believers, and you've been moved by it. We get this all the time. People come to Bible study once, and at the end of Bible study, they'll be like, that was the best thing I ever heard. That was so amazing. That was just great. Or my favorite, that blew my mind. And then they're not back the next week. Oops. It's impossible for that to get you to heaven. You can't just have your mind blown once and then think you're on your way to heaven. It's, 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 it's uncompromised in the way this is written. You've tasted the good word of God. You've heard good Bible study. You know what the Bible says. This is, again, quite a resume. 
You have the powers of the age to come. Let's add to that. You have experienced, seen, and recognized the signs, wonders, and miracles that have been mentioned in Hebrews already. You know what it's like when God moves on earth, and you've seen it. You recognize, wow, that's incredible. You've prayed for something, and it's been answered. This week, we've been praying for a brother's uh, sister in the hospital. In two days, her lungs were filling up faster than they could clear. In two days, she's out of the ICU and on recovery because you got all these people praying for her. Amazing. You've seen that, you recognize it, and you know that that's God doing a work as a response to the prayers of the saints. Right there. You, it's like, wow. You know, you've experienced the powers of the age to come. Well, that means worship. When you worship, you sing a worship song, and something just takes over, and the room goes away, and it's just you and God. And it's like, mmm, I love this. This is great. And you walk out going, man, worship just fed my soul today. That's the powers of the age to come. You know what the Holy Spirit feels like. It's not, it's not overwhelming. It's not like demon possession. But you understand that God's moving. You've had some, another believer bless you. You were feeling something, struggling with something. Somebody, another believer just comes up and says exactly the right thing and they had no idea that's what you needed to hear. Or a Bible verse comes up that was exactly what you needed to hear that day. Folks, that's the Holy Spirit. It's simple. It's, it's a still small voice. It's a presence that you just understand and, and you've tasted. You've known it. This is quite a list. The writer is arguing that the core foundational experiences of being a believer have been experienced by this person. Now from our flesh, when we see somebody doing this list, it's, we can't even imagine that they're not Christians. We can't even begin to fathom that they're not on their way to heaven because we don't see the heart. But God does. It, the writer adds this to make it clear to the Jews that when you leave behind these things that you've experienced and you disregard them and go follow another religion, that is not a path to heaven, even Judaism. If you've experienced all those things I just listed and then you never show up again and go back to your old life, think of what you just walked away from. You've walked away from where God is clearly acting. And the writer's making that case because God is clearly acting with the Christians and he's not clearly acting in the synagogues. You go back to Judaism, that's a dead end. It's like you're crucifying Christ all over again because you haven't accepted the gift. You've seen it, you've known it, you've experienced it, you accept it, but you're not living it. You're just walking away. You go back to Buddhism after becoming a Christian, it is impossible for Buddhism to save your soul. It is impossible for shamanistic religions and practices to save your soul. It is impossible for Islam to save your soul. You cannot go to those things and think you're on the way to heaven, especially after you've experienced Christianity. You know what it is. Verse 6 says, if they fall away. If is such a big word here. It's a conditional statement. If you've experienced all these things and you fall away, people struggle with this. That means it's possible to fall away from the faith. I would like to venture and argue to you, it is possible for anyone in the world to get saved. It is possible for anyone in the world to reject salvation. We believe that. And that's a, a biblical, solid belief. Why would we think that goes away after experiencing and tasting the Holy Spirit and knowing it? We still have free will. Everything in the New Testament that I could find in one week references that the life in Christ is a journey that goes from when you get saved all the way to the end of your life. And, and when you, at any point in that journey, say, I'm done with all this, God gives you the ability to do that. 
And for some people that just throws them into conniptions, I think because in their heart, they wonder how saved they are. And they struggle with it. So they want a rule that says, if I do these things, God can't not save me. But that is the essence of works-based theology, which we reject wholeheartedly. There's nothing you can do or say that saves you. God chooses to save you or not save you at the end of time. And it's based on your heart and what you're pushing towards. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, the word there is metanoia, a change of mind, a reversal. If you've experienced all these things in Christ and then choose to not be a Christian, it's impossible to get you to choose the other way because you've already made the choice. You've experienced everything there is to offer in the Christian faith and walked away. And I'm not talking about backsliding, right? But questions like, can somebody fall away and then not be renewed again? Were these people actually believers in the first place? You can ask, did God choose to elect them? If so, how can, they, how can God elect somebody that falls away from the faith? And this is so personal. Like, this is why people get upset. How do I know if I'm going to heaven or not? Am I saved? Do I have free will? <laughs> So this is not milk as a topic, is it? It's much easier to say Jesus died for your sins and he loves you. This is, wow, this is solid food. And it's worthy of our thought. In fact, we should think about this. It's the good stuff. It can confuse baby believers because they want to set answer. If I do this, then I'm going to heaven. So the writer throws in, I think, the toughest issue that he possibly can in contrast to the foundational principles. So here's the text. There is actually an emphasis on impossible, and these are actually clear experiences of God and the Holy Spirit in the past tense. And if they were enlightened, it's hard to argue that they weren't enlightened in the first place. That's a tough argument to make. You've got to make the Bible say something that it's clearly not saying. The Bible is saying they have clearly been enlightened and they've clearly experienced these awesome foundational pieces of the faith. At least by my read. We can talk about it over lunch too. If you've tasted, it's hard to argue that they didn't actually taste it. Does that make sense? Like that, you're actually seeing the opposite of what the passage says. So there's no indication here of a partial experience or a false experience or a fake experience. And I want to give you some context because this isn't just Hebrews. This is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. Listen to this. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me this day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name we've cast out devils? And in your name we've done wonderful works? I, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. You just go into the church and cause division everywhere you go, you iniquity workers. That's actually sin. Matthew 24 is a whole chapter saying, woe to these people that call themselves believers, but they don't do belief. They don't act like believers, dang it. And Hebrews is doing the same thing. Woe to baby Christians that never grow up because you don't want to grow up. They're doing the things that Judaism, by the way, Judaism, all those things are good by definition. God told them to do those things. There's nothing evil about Judaism. It's good, but it's not going to be a path to heaven anymore. So you do good works, Jewish works, but you don't do the things God's asked you to do now. So it's not the same thing. And, and I think that's a, a solid food concept that we struggle with. I struggle with it. If they fall away, a conditional statement saying that there is still free will after we come to some intellectual belief system. 
You can intellectually believe in the faith, but then not do the faith. That's possible. That's a struggle for us as believers. That's tough. If you care about the question, can I lose my salvation? Brothers and sisters, that question is absolutely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if you're asking it, you're probably not to worry about it, right? The people that would say, I really don't care about Jesus' salvation, that's the people that need to worry. It's impossible for them to get to heaven, Un unquestionably. You're not falling away if you wrestle with this. The Holy Spirit wrestling with this is an indication the Holy Spirit's still active in your life. Your ears aren't dull. To fall away there is parapito. It's, and I think this is an important part of understanding this verse. It means to deviate, slip aside, or go follow another faith. Fall away. You are not practicing Christians anymore. It is not the word sin. In the Greek, fall away is parapito. In the Greek, the word for sin is hamarishia. They're not even close phonetically. Like, they're not even the same root word. We are not talking about sin when we read these verses. We're talking about leaving the Christian faith and thinking that you can still get to heaven because there's many paths to heaven, right? Universalists. I believe in all of the religions. That's not getting you to heaven. That's an absolute dead end. The difference in the two words, the word sin is to miss the mark or screw up. We screw up all the time, believers. This is not a chapter about that. This is not about sin. It's not about backsliding. It's not about going a dry season where you got two years, the Holy Spirit seeing how long you can be faithful without feeling the presence, right? This is not that. This is to actually fall away, to stop coming to church and start going to temple. That's falling away. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked man shall fall by calamity, Proverbs 24, 16. I actually think that verse is being used by the writer of Hebrews to make that distinction. Falling away, you can fall or sin, and you can just keep rising again. God will keep redeeming you. He'll keep renewing the spirit whenever you ask him. But the wicked fall away by calamity. They choose another lifestyle, and they go there. Peter versus Judas. They both fell in some senses, but Peter renewed himself to salvation. Judas fell away to calamity, right? There's a huge difference between there. Peter never stopped believing even when he failed. Like if you sin and feel guilty, Holy Spirit's still working in your heart. Sinners don't feel guilty when they sin. They feel happy for a very short amount of time until it destroys their life, right? But, but godly people when they sin feel guilty as heck. They know this was horrible and dumb. Killing the lamb at the temple, it's not going to cleanse you anymore. God's our forgiver. He is our cleanser. You don't need to go down and do baptisms at the temple. Washings, mitzvahs. Since, the, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, they choose to not believe in Jesus, and they don't believe that his crucifixion was good enough for their salvation, so they keep doing the works of the temple. This is a very Hebrew letter. That's the name of it. One pastor got this person that called them, they're all anxious, and they said, I just read the Hebrews 6, and I just feel like I'm going to burn in hell, and nothing's going to happen, and the pastor answered, and he said, are you Hebrew? The person said, no. Okay, did you see the name of the letter? It's not written to you, but I do think there's application here, like, even if we're not Hebrews, you can choose to just go live how you did before you were saved. You choose not to believe in him. In the first century, they saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, they crucified Jesus. That was unbelief. Oops, bad mistake. But later in the first century, after the resurrection, they see Jesus, they hear Jesus, and then they don't follow him? 
that's requiring a second crucifixion. That's not just, oops, unbelief. That's you're going to die and you're going to burn in hell. You can't do that after the resurrection. And again, the word is impossible. You can't get saved under the old covenant. Jesus fulfilled that covenant. It's done. So Jesus won't come and prove his authority twice on a cross. He'll exercise his authority next time he comes. And I think that's an important distinction. He's not going to do the cross twice. It was sufficient. There are those who are convinced that they're on Yahweh's path. They are convinced that they're on Yahweh's path. And they're doers of things. Don't think that Jesus came to destroy the law and the prophets. He didn't come to destroy them. He came to fulfill them. But as he fulfills them, we need to accept that they're fulfilled. We can't go back to Judaism. First century Pharisees did lots of stuff. They even did evangelical, evangelical stuff. Pharisees in the first century were taking missionary trips. But there's no benefit to that. In fact, to do it after Jesus in the name of Judaism is actually then becomes evil in nature. Good things become bad things. So the very works deny that Jesus made a sacrifice that fulfills all those works. The crucifixion becomes pointless. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, Jesus, and we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice truth. It's impossible to be renewed if we don't practice truth, if we don't live in our faith. In fact, it's embarrassing. It puts him to an open shame. In the Greek, that's all one word, paradiagmatizio. It's to give a bad example. If you are saying that you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, but then you go back to tabernacle and sacrifice a lamb, that's an embarrassment because you really don't believe in Jesus at the end of the day. Your actions don't prove it. So then people get upset. Well, this says I can lose my salvation. Well, are you Hebrew? Are you going to temple? Do you, did you ever own salvation or is it something that was given to you? Right? Think of the question. Can I lose my salvation? It's not yours. It's something... or. or you're, if you openly reject the covenant of Jesus Christ and then practice a religion that rejects the covenant of Jesus Christ, yeah, you're in trouble. That's not good. But this isn't really about you. It's about these Hebrews that were doing just that. It also says renew to repentance. You can't repent if you're not trying to repent. You can't be renewed to repentance if you reject the solution. What are you repenting to if you don't believe in Jesus? If you don't believe that he's the new covenant. So does Jesus save us? Yeah, he will save us when we sit before a judgment seat. He'll step in and say, no, this one's mine. This is one of the people I died for. He's in my family. She's in my family. I take this one. And at that point, it doesn't matter how much sin we have, how much backsliding we have. Everything we've ever done goes away if Jesus says, that one I know. They're in my family. They've sought me. They've pursued me. And man, that person's life was a struggle. They struggled their whole life, but they were always coming towards me even in the struggles. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us from all righteousness. So can you lose his salvation? Never. That's what we call the assurance of salvation. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Period. It's over. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to go to temple to do more sacrifices. It's cleansed, all of it. Because his he's powerful enough to do that. Does our salvation rely on Mosaic religious covenants? No, absolutely not. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we actually have to give up our life and serve a living God? Uh-huh. That's exactly what we do. 
Everything that was before following Christ has to take second fiddle. That's the trade. I don't know if I want to go all in. Okay, well, is that going to get you to heaven? Is that going to get you saved? Well, I can't just be a geeky Christian like you. If you really think studying the word and worshiping God and praising and eating food with the fellowships of the saints, you think that that's a big bummer? Maybe heaven isn't for you in the first place. Why are you worried about it? Because that's what we do. But for those of us that just love it, it's like the one break we get all week from everything else. It's refreshing. We end the day and we're like, yeah, I had to get up and get there and that was my flesh. That was tough. But once I got there, man, I was so blessed. Oh, that's the Holy Spirit feeding your life. Don't need to worry if you're in that boat. Even if you're a sinner, you don't need to worry when you're in that boat because that's where you go for your joy. Are you a believer because of something theoretical that you came to believe or are you a believer because of the very existence of Jesus Christ in your life that needs no further proof? He is sufficient. He's met you. He keeps you. That's a big question we need to ask. That's solid food we need to eat. It's still very relevant for people in our world that follow the world, secularism, pop psychology, television, movies, people that follow after that stuff and that's what their heart is for. Good luck seeing if that's going to save you. So this isn't for those that are here at a Christian Bible study on a Sunday morning. You're here. You're not at Tabernacle. This isn't for you. This is for another group of people. That's paradiakmatizo. It's embarrassing for them. They're lukewarm. They're Jesus fakers. That's so sad, right? It's safe to say that you can give the appearance of being a Christian, but God is never fooled by that. I think this happens a lot with spouses. One of the spouses is all in, and the other spouse just comes along because they have to. And as long as they're there, they might, might as well make social nice with people. So they learn Christianese to fit in, but the, it's really not there. It's not, it's not their thing. They're just humoring their spouse, right? So here's the thing. It is impossible to enjoy a party if you show up at the wrong house. I think that's a great way to read this verse. You cannot enjoy the renewal of repentance that happens every Sunday if you show up on a Saturday. It doesn't work. It's impossible. So you could be invited to a party and go to a party across town and you knock on the door and people are like, what are you doing here? And that's exactly what Jesus was sharing. People are going to come to heaven and say, I'm here, I arrived. And Jesus is going to be like, no, that party is across town. I don't. Actually, Jesus will be at the party across town. There'll be some other person going, there's nothing here. There's nothing in Mosaic Judaism left. It's an empty shell. Yet here we are in 2022, there are still practicing Jews that have already had their Messiah arrive. That is a tough thing to absorb. And most Jews don't want to hear it. But that's ministry. In fact, Trevor's excited because in the last few years, we've seen more people come to be Messianic Jews than ever in the, in the last 2,000 years. Like the rate of conversion is going nuts. One in five Minnesota Jews are, are Messianic Jews. One in five. Like that number used to be one in a hundred. But it's changing very quickly. And, you know, Trevor's probably doing a nice job as an evangelist. But we don't put him to open shame. We don't do things that are going to embarrass our God. So out of contest, this looks like you can lose your salvation by backsliding. I think, and that leads to despair. It leads to division in the church. It leads to splits. I think this verse has nothing to do with making a sinful mistake. It has everything to do with following a false god and thinking that that false god's going to save you. That doesn't work and there's no repentance. There's no renewal there. There's no repentance. 
There's nothing fruitful in that path. So the writer gives an example, verse 7 and 8, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. That's what that looks like. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Like, I don't know how it gets too much clearer when you read it with that context perspective. This is how this looks. There are those that are hearing God's word and they feel its blessing and they follow him. And there are consequences for those that are not partaking in the word of God and participating in the verses four and five. If you're not doing those things, you're in trouble. The word herbs here is the Greek word for all of botany. It's not just a particular plant, but any plant that's useful or good was an herb. We kind of still use the word that, but apple trees would be an herb, right? It includes anything that's fruitful and good. So cultivating a spiritual life comes with all different types of blessings, all over the map kind of blessings. And in verse 8, if you don't tend the ground, it gives way to weeds and thorns and briars. You become dull of hearing. All the sin creeps into your life. It's going to mess you up. And that's a problem. And those that don't tend that territory. Again, I can have a weed grow in my garden and then I pluck it and I throw it. That's called tending and cultivating. It's called maturity. But if I never tend the garden, that's disastrous. That's a life that's going nowhere. If you never do those things, if you never wrestle with and deal with sin, sometimes sin will bite you in the butt because God wants you to deal with it. Get this out of your life. Mark 4, 16, I'll kind of end on three other references that kind of emphasize this idea. This is the parable from Jesus' mouth. Mark 4, verse 16. And these are likewise which are grown on stony ground, who when they've heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Oh, it's blow my mind. That's the greatest thing ever. And then they have no root in themselves, so they only endure for a time. And afterwards, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they're offended. And these are they which are sown among the thorns. They, such, they hear the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. You can't live in both worlds. To hear and accept Jesus dies for your sin is a belief that all demons share with us. It does nothing to believe Jesus died for our sins. Because demons, again, believe that. Many believe it and they don't follow Jesus as their king. That's a problem. Some bear fruit and then they die. And they get choked off, they get dull of ears. This is where the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, not evil intentions. Lots of people are going to hell and they think they're doing great because they've defined great to themselves instead of reading the Word of God. Everything comes back to the Word. They follow careers, families. They follow spiritual synagogues. They never trust in Jesus with what they should do on a day-to-day -day basis. I know many believers that don't tend their own ground and they aren't spiritually blessed. It's, it says here, it doesn't say that they are cursed. It says that this is near to being cursed. That's not a good way to live life because you don't get the benefits of the faith and living by the word, which is pretty awesome, I'll testify to. And you don't really get the benefits of the world because you feel guilty every time you're doing it. Well, that's just a painful struggle for 20 years and then you die and the end result is you get burned. Repent from that, turn from that. The reason the writer is writing this is so that they don't stay dull and have that outcome. 
The reason the writer is writing this is to emphasize the point that Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. If I abide in Jesus and I in him, it brings forth much fruit, for without Jesus we can do nothing. If you're not doing anything, that's a problem. Don't do that. It's useful for people that are cultivated. It's not useful for people that don't cultivate. What can I do to get as close to Jesus as I can? How can I get more Bible study time in in a day? How can I find ways to sing and praise the Lord? Maybe I should learn an instrument. How can I help with the food preparation on a Sunday morning? Maybe I could just bring cookies. You know, like baby blocks. Maybe I can just start out. How can I bless the body by tithing appropriately? How can I bless the body by showing up a little early to help get set up? How can I bless the body by staying late just to talk about faith with other people? How can I bless the body by dealing with the weirdo that just showed up and somebody has to deal with a weirdo so they don't cause division in the church? Right? All of those things are little things we can do that God calls fruit. Those are blessings for the body. How can I be a blessing just by letting my words be words of encouragement and edification every time I speak to somebody in the body? That I'm just known as that person that blesses people with my mouth. Even 10-year-olds can do that. Everybody can say nice things to other people that comes from the heart. Hey, I really noticed this and I really appreciated it. Thank you. Can you imagine hearing that from a little 10-year-old? I'd be like, whoa, cool 10-year-old. That's a mature 10-year-old. Because look at what they just did. They did something that's mature. This isn't about age level. It's about spiritual maturity. How can I bless people? It's amazing that God asks us to work in the body, yet we get blessed by the work that we do. I, I, only in Christianity does that. You know, you think of other religions and you, you do something, like, and it comes with pain and agony and turmoil. I'm going to take this trek and journey and punish myself. We do work for Jesus. We actually get blessed by it. That's amazing how that works. So the writer has been talking about Jesus' house, chapter 3, entering rest, chapter 4, and replacing the covenants of the, the work of the Levitical priesthood, chapter 5. So Christianity, it's not a labor, it's a love. Totally different than every other world religion. So you get to choose Christianity or any other path, verse 8, leads to the end of being burned. That's a, a reference to the lake of fire where people who don't serve the king are going to end up. God's not bringing those people into the kingdom of heaven. They're going to show up at the wedding feast. They're going to knock and they won't get let in. The door's shut and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, those left outside the wedding. A retreat to Judaism makes it impossible to repent. Why? Because Caiaphas is a human high priest. He cannot defend you in an eternal court. What about Abraham? Abraham came before Jesus. Uh-huh. And he had an order of priesthood under Melchizedek that is eternal under Jesus Christ. Oh, okay, okay, okay. What about like Joshua? He was in the Mosaic priesthood and he had Mosaic priests, yep, which were symbols of Jesus Christ. When Joshua sits before the throne, he's going to celebrate Jesus Christ. He'll be like, we got the same name. That's so cool. And he'll, those saints that we read about in the Old Testament will recognize at the end of days, they will not be burned because they followed Judaism. They did exactly what God told them to do in their era and their season of life. And the people that are born today, we don't go to Judaism for that reason. We have a high priest that's eternal and superior, chapter 4, chapter 5. So I'll end on this thought. Acts 4, verse 12. 
There is no, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no under no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus or bust. That's the point of this Hebrews. And and, and again, we'll get to we'll that's the end of what we're going to do today, and we'll finish chapter six and maybe get into chapter seven next week. But end on that thought. It's either Jesus or nothing, and that's the argument of, of the book of Hebrews. Jesus, Jesus or, or any other path leads to, the, to nothing and burning. That's the key. That's what it means to be useful and to serve in the kingdom of God. You can be a baby, but be a baby in the kingdom of God. You can be mature, eating solid food, do it in the kingdom of God. Don't think that going to other religions and other places is going to help you because it's just not. They don't have a system that works. So is that a meaty enough topic, getting off the milk? Right? That's a thick set of thoughts to put around our put our heads around. Not all of us are at a place in our spiritual walk where, where we're ready for those kinds of things. However, I thank you for putting up with the teaching this morning, regardless. But I, I we're gonna get into the rest of chapter six and, and the writer's gonna say stuff like, I'm not I'm not talking to you. And he directly says that to his readers. Like if you're reading this letter, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the people that aren't with you this morning. They're off at synagogue doing something else with their life. Those are the people we need to think about and worry about and pray about because that's a dead end and it's impossible to get to heaven when you do that. So again, this isn't like get religious about church and never miss church or anything like that. But it is the idea that church should be a priority. Like that is something we should focus on. Um, And what's making it so we can't get to church? Is it other church stuff? Or is it that we're out of town? Like we miss church when we're on vacation. But if we're around, we're just sitting around our house Boy, our, our house is just like going to synagogue. It doesn't lead to salvation. It's not a path. The train's here. That's my time. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for when the word of God hits hard. And Lord, we just, we know that this was a, a tough passage. There might be people in the room right now that are really wrestling with the teaching today. Um, Lord, I pray that in grace and in maturity, we can talk through those things. Maybe we can even agree to disagree on some things. Lord, I know that the church has split entire denominations over these verses. I know the enemy can use these verses because it plays at our confidence and it questions our security that we think we have. Um, But Lord, may no one in this room walk out of here today without security in what you've promised. That if we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, we will be saved and that that's absolutely rock solid, that that promise is throughout the New Testament and frankly, throughout the Old Testament. That Lord, you keep your promises, you are faithful. Everything you've done in world history says you keep your promises. So Lord, if there's anyone in here that doubts right now or is that, that's questioning their faith or their salvation, Lord, I just know that's a thought from the enemy himself, uh, that you've promised salvation to those that seek and serve you. So Lord, may we be those people. May we occupy our mind not with those questions, but with questions of how to serve, how to grow, how to mature, how to expand our Bible study time, our prayer time, our worship time, our fellowship time. Lord, how to live our lives with other believers being a blessing and not a curse. Lord, help us to grow up and help me to grow up. Lord, you know my heart. You know the things I'm wrestling with, the things, Lord, it's everybody. And we all have to be doing that together. Lord, help us to have grace for one another. Help us to welcome and have grace even for baby Christians. Uh, That they're so cute. And Lord, help us to just have a a heart of growth because of the joy set before us, just like you did. No matter what path we walk or however tough it gets, 
May we not experience persecution and struggle and then run away from you. May those things cause us to run to you. That any trial in our life cause us to go towards you, Lord, and not away. Because we know that's where our salvation lies, with utter confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.